Everybody make sure you say hello to Janice Chisholm, who's visiting for the weekend on keyboards. Hi, Janice. Good to have her back. They uh, ran away to Colorado Springs, but we get her back to visit sometimes. So, um, If you want to follow along with us this morning, we are in Ephesians. So if you want to open up, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians. Or if you want to grab one of those black Bibles under the chairs, uh, you can pull one of those out. And we're going to be on page 976. We're going through this uh, study of Ephesians that we've called a new identity. And we're trying to uh, discover this whole concept that we are given an identity, this alien identity that we're given by God, right? So a lot of us, we grew up uh, maybe with an identity based on what we could do, our skills, our personality, the neighborhood, the tribe we belong to, the people we come from. And God says, I'm going to give you a new identity based on my love for you. And that's what we're going to unpack in Ephesians, that we should live in a new way based on that new identity that he's given to us. This morning, we're calling it Loved by Our Father. We're focusing in on the love that the Father has for us. Um, we're, we've got kind of a long section here in the first, uh, first main section of Ephesians. It's verses 3 through 14. And so what I want to do is the next three weeks kind of focus in on one chunk at a time. In these, these verses, 3 through 14, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to love us and to give us this new identity. Uh, because it's uh, so many verses and it's quite complex, I want to kind of focus in and bite it off like one, one bite at a time. So we're going to focus this week on being loved by our Father and what we see there. Uh, although, of course, all along the way, we'll see Father, Son, and Spirit working together. I wanted to show you a picture here of what this sentence looks like. Verses 3 through 14 are actually one sentence, right? So in the, in the English that you're looking at, um, I think most of you are looking at English, right? In the English, it, it's several sentences. But if you are looking at it in your Greek, if you have your Greek text out, it's one sentence, okay? So here's uh, the diagram of that sentence. Uh, my wife does sentence diagramming with her students, and so I need to get this to her for her classroom. It's a little complex, right? Any of you ever diagram sentences in school? A few of you, right? Usually it was like, yeah, the first couple of lines, but this is, this is what we have, verses 3 through 14. So we're going to try to, like I said, focus in carve off a chunk, a bite-sized piece that we can kind of chew on this morning, focusing in on the love of the Father. We are loved by our Father. Uh, later on in Ephesians, it says all, all earthly fathers, all families get their name from the Heavenly Father, okay? So we often reverse this kind of in our man-centered view. We think, uh, like with the marriage metaphor, we've talked about this before, that God's looking down and he's like, oh, people are getting married. I'll use that to tell them about me. Well, well no, it, it's the other way around, Right? God loves us, and so human institutions are created. Humanity and culture comes from who he is, right? So family and fatherhood is created to reflect who God is, not the other way around. God doesn't kind of accommodate himself to our culture. Our culture is a result of of what God has said about reality, who he is. God is our heavenly father. And so we either live in a way in our culture that reflects that well, or we live in a way that doesn't reflect that well. And I want to give you just a few stats to kind of give you a feeling for, for well, we, where we've gone wrong. Most, most people now grow up without a father. And so I just want to give you a picture of what this looks like in society. Um, so most people now growing up without a father, and it says uh, one stat is that young men who grow up in homes without fathers are twice as likely to end up in jail. You've probably heard of some of these before. You'll ever heard these before? If you grow up without a dad, you're twice as likely to end up in jail. It says uh, 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 
71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in uh, state juvenile institutions come from fatherless homes. In a study of 1,200 fourth graders, they found greater levels of aggression in boys from mother-only households than from boys in mother-father households. The likelihood that a young male will engage in criminal activity doubles if he's raised without a father and triples if he lives in a neighborhood where there's a high concentration of single-parent families. So not only do they see the effect on kids without a dad, but then they see the effect on the neighborhoods where there's not very many dads in one neighborhood. And so we see this, this hurt that's the result of not having a father. Some of you had a father, and you still have hurts because of who that father was, because he didn't live up to what the heavenly father is like. He didn't show you true justice and true mercy in one person the way that God the Father does. So all of us, I believe, even if we had good fathers, have some hurts because of who our father was, because of our father not perfectly representing the heavenly father. So all of us come in here, even if even if you had a dad, or maybe you didn't have a dad at all, maybe you had an abusive dad, maybe you had a really good dad, we all come in with a need for the perfect heavenly father. And so what I want you to see this morning is that, that God is that father that you need. That hole that we have, that missing piece that we have, God fills that need for us by uh, adopting us, by making us his children. So we're going to read, and what I want to do is I want to read the whole section, okay, 3 through 14. Like I said, we're going to carve off a piece and just focus on 3, 4, 5, and 6 this morning as we kind of explain it, but I want to read the whole section. So if you'll read the whole section with me, um, I'm going to try to kind of read it quickly so you get a feel for just the, it's just ecstatic praise, right? It's just kind of Paul going on and on about how awesome God is and his goodness and his grace to us. Starting in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us to to absorb this, that he would help us to learn this this morning. God, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Um, There are big things in the text, and we pray that that you would help us to see what you want us to see. I pray that uh, my explanations and the things that I say would help and not hinder, uh, that we would really uh, hear you communicating your love to us this morning. We thank you for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you have children of your own, uh, and many of you have been around children enough that you might have had an experience like this. You might have a niece or nephew. Uh, say you're coming out of a restaurant and people are driving a little too quickly through the parking lot. Say your kid is four or five and your child sees your car 
across the parking lot. So, of course, they're like, hey, that's my car, and they take off, right? Has this ever happened to you? You see a car coming, you see your your kid running, you know the car's not going to see your kid running between two cars, and so what do you do? What do you do? Um, Probably a lot of you say, you know what, I really want to honor my child's free will, and I want them to be an independent human actor making their own decisions. I don't want to force myself on them, Uh, so we'll just see what happens. That's, That's not what happens, No. No, you, you probably scream, right? There's probably this guttural like, ah, you know, and your kid's crying going, what's going on? And you're running and you grab them. And you pull them out of the oncoming traffic because you love them, because they belong to you. And I believe that that is the startling sort of picture that we have in the scripture this morning. We have the startling picture of a God who seems to be violating our freedom in some ways, but he's doing it out of love. He's loving us. He's rescuing us. He's adopting us. He's freeing us. And so there's going to be some difficult things that we're going to see this morning, but I use that illustration because I want to couch it in what I believe is the trajectory of the scripture. The scripture is, is pointing us in this, this trajectory, this direction of saying, this is God's love for you. So we're going to talk about some big things this morning, some philosophically difficult things, some things that Christians have disagreed about for thousands of years, Okay. But we're going to try to focus on the main point. What is the main point? What is the rallying point here? It's God's saving work for us as a heavenly father who loved us so much he gave Jesus for us. That's the center. That's the bullseye. There's going to be some secondary doctrines that I believe support that. And I'm going to explain my view on them. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you to understand that you don't have to agree with me 100% to be here and to worship Jesus uh, together with us as a family but I'm going to try to do the best I can to make sense of what we have here. The the first thing that we see as we start to unpack this, and just the first verse is kind of repeated in verse 6. So that's part of why I've carved off verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 together. I want to focus in on the Father's love for us. The first thing that we see in verse 3 is that we are blessed to bless. Okay, If you look at verse 3 in the text, it says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has given us all the blessings of Christ in his heavenly seat, his heavenly identity, his inheritance of the Son of God. God the Father has blessed us with that. Um, this is, this is mind-blowing. He sees us. He doesn't see me as, as Dave, the forgetful loser. He sees me as Christ, his beloved Son. He sees me through Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. I am perfectly delightful to him. And he's working through me and working in me to transform me more and more to look like Christ in my daily reality. But I'm hidden with Christ in the heavenly realms, the scripture says in Colossians. So he's blessed us. He's given good things to us. He's blessed us and we bless him. So Paul says, this is kind of the heading for this whole section, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, bless God. God is good. God is great. This is kind of the Hebrew prayer. It's sometimes called the Baraka, um, where they would say, blessed be uh, God, the father of the universe, or blessed be God, the creator of all things. And they would kind of have this kind of uh, ritual type prayers that they would say. And so Paul is following that Jewish format here and saying that really it's all centered in the work, the activity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Blessed be God, this great, this great heavenly father we have, the father of Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with all of Jesus's blessings, given us all of Jesus's blessings in him. I think this is very important for us to to note the order here. We are blessed 
to bless him. Because I think sometimes if, if you've been around religious people at all, uh, if you've been in uh, Christianity or been in churches much, what can happen is Christians begin to come into church or come into your just daily habits of prayer and praise thinking, I need to bless God so that I will get some blessing in return. Kind of this merit-based like idea that we can earn something from him instead of remembering, no, he's, he's blessed me, so that's why I bless him. I bless him. I say good things about him. Bless uh, literally is, is speak good. Okay, that's, that's what it is in the Greek. It's eulogia. It's speak good. Say good things, right? I say good things about God because he said good things about me. He's given good things to me. He's uh, given me his goodness and his grace. I have a picture here of a uh, dad giving his son money. Is that a familiar picture to anybody? Um, if you're a dad, this is very familiar. Even if you've ever been a kid with a dad that had money in his wallet, this should be somewhat familiar. As a, as a kid, you don't have anything that your dad doesn't give to you or your mom doesn't give to you. Uh, there's a band, uh, an old band. I think they just got back together, as a matter of fact. Sixpence None the Richer. Anybody ever heard of Sixpence None the Richer? Yeah, they had like a big radio hit, Kiss Me, which was really famous, and a bunch of other songs that nobody liked. Um, and uh, I liked them, so I'm teasing. But they, they have this band name from a line that C.S. Lewis wrote talking about how if a child buys a present for their father, it blesses the father. The father loves it. The father delights in that gift. But the child probably borrowed the sixpence or the money to purchase that present before he bought the present. And so the father's sixpence none the richer. And we have to understand that in our relationship with God. We don't bring anything to the table. He, he gives us his grace. He blesses us and we bless him in return. So this thing we do, corporate worship, or in your own, your own personal habits, you pray, you, you honor God, you praise him, uh, you give blessing to him, you speak good things about who God is and what he's done in your life, you're doing that in response to what God has done for you. You're not doing that to create some magic matrix of blessing. You're doing that to respond to what he's given to you. He's already given you his blessings in Jesus Christ. We're, we're blessed in the heavenly realms with God. We have to remember that in our daily life, and I think that will begin to help us to really grow. And we're going to look at that in, in the next section because so often we reverse that order and we start thinking that growth is something we can make happen by you know, blessing God, and then maybe he'll bless us in return, and then maybe we'll finally have victory over certain sins in our life instead of resting in the reality that he's given us everything we need in Jesus Christ. And then we progress from there. And that's what we're going to look at here in this next section. So the next section is that we are chosen for transformation. We are chosen for transformation. And I, forget, I didn't show you verse 6. Before we move on to, to chosen, verse 6 kind of restates the blessed to bless. So at the end of our section in verse 6, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So it's really a restatement of that idea. He's, we bless God because of the spiritual blessings he's given us. And then he talks about all the blessings and what God has done for us. And then he comes back to that idea in verse 6. He says, this is all to the praise of his glorious grace. So this is all about praising God's grace to us, what he's done for us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in his son, Jesus. So again, just a restatement of those ideas in verse 3. So moving on now to verse uh, 4. Looking at verse 4, my notes got all jumbled here. We are chosen for transformation. We are chosen for transformation. Read verse 4 with me. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we've got this idea, uh, chosen. It's uh, sometimes translated as election. Uh, And later on in the next verse, we've got this word predestination. So we've got some difficult concepts there that I'm going to kind of set aside for our next point where we'll talk with that in context of predestination. But here I want to zero in on on why he chose us. Why did he choose us? What what are we chosen for? What does it say in verse 4? He chose us for, well, transformation. Very good. You're reading my slide. I like that. Let's look at the, let's look at the text, though, too. In verse 4, it says, He chose us for that we should, let's see, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So this word holy is a reflection of the word we saw earlier uh, in the section last week where we talked about this letter was written to saints. Remember that? This letter was written to saints, and we talked about this last week, that the word saint doesn't mean the, the super-duper Christian uh, the word saint just means Christian. Saint is the same word as holy. So you've got saint, sanctify, holy, holiness. All four of these words come from the same root, same root word in Greek. We just use different English words to translate them. And at, at, their, at their heart, they mean set apart for special purposes. Okay? So if you believed in Christ, if you trusted in him, you are set apart. Bam, point in time. It's, it's happened. He has set you apart. He's made you his saint. He's made you holy, and he's also making you holy, right? So he has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy, to be blameless. Blameless really just means you can't, can't be accused of wrongdoing because you have a right standing now in Christ. And so what I want to help us to understand is that process that, that happens in our Christian life, that it is a one-point-in-time thing, and it is an ongoing process both. Because a lot of Christians, I think, Uh, emphasize one or the other. And when you just emphasize one or the other, it can cause confusion in our daily life, right? Because some of you, I bet, still struggle with sin. So any any Christians out there that still sin sometimes? A couple of honest people. Okay, good. And so what happens is is we say, all right, I got to believe that that I'm holy and I'm a saint. And then you look at your daily life and you're like, I'm I'm not seeing it, right? I, I I don't really see that taking shape in my life, I still struggle. And so you're confused about what this means. And so there's a both punctiliar and progressive aspect to this. Uh, punctiliar is, is a favorite word I learned in, in grammar that says basically there's a point in time, right? So punctiliar is this uh, adjective to describe it's a point, right? Uh, and so it's not, a, not really a word you could find in an English dictionary, but your, your grammarians in Greek class will talk about it. It's this bam, right? So think of that. That might be a better word for you. Just bam, right? He just... He makes you a saint, right? You trust in him, you're a saint. That means he sets you aside for his purposes. He, he's carved you over here and you are his. Later on, we'll get into the term of adoption. You belong to him now. You are his. And then he's continually shaping us. He's continually transforming us and making us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus. This is talked about later in Ephesians and Colossians as us putting on the new man. It's this ongoing process of believing what he's done for us, trusting that and making decisions based out of that motivation. He loves me. He's forgiven me. So therefore, he's good and I'm going to choose him instead of sin. And so this is an ongoing transformation that takes place in our lives. We actually do more holy things because we actually believe he's good. In those moments when we slip back and do the stupid things that we don't want to be doing anymore, we do those because in those moments, we're not believing he's good, we're believing the sin is good. And so we slip back into that. And so the motivation is the point in time, bam, he loves me. 
I'm his. He loves me. And that begins to be the heart motivation for us. That's the transformative push that God gives us. And then based on that, we keep going back to that to then live in new ways, to then make right decisions, to then set aside the addiction and begin to choose to trust in him and believe that he is even better than whatever this temporary solution may be. And so it's both a point in time and it's an ongoing action because of his work, because of what he's done. Chosen us before the foundation of the world, we were chosen to be holy and to be blameless. I have a picture here of that process in play. Anybody seen the movie Spider-Man that came out, I don't know, 100 years ago now? It's the old Spider-Man. And so the, the concept is he gets bitten by this radioactive spider and it begins to transform his body, right? And so he goes from skinny kid to now all of a sudden he has muscles and he has like superpowers, right? So this is uh, him looking in the mirror, looking at his new muscles. He just like somehow slept for 15 hours and put on 20 pounds overnight. And uh, this is kind of what a lot of boys go through when they're like 15 or 16, right? And uh, I remember that day like, wow, I have muscles. And then it never really progressed from there. It just kind of <laughs> stopped. But uh, it's this, this concept that God is changing you. There's transformation taking place. Peter Parker just wakes up and he's like, I've, I've changed. I was talking to a friend the other day uh, who's struggled with addiction for a lot of years. And uh, he was telling me just how frustrated he is with feeling like there's still the sin in him. Uh, but as the conversation went on, we talked about the fact that he's been sober, sober for seven years now been sober for seven years. And I was like, dude, that's incredible. That, that's huge. That is transformation. And so what can happen in our own personal life is we don't focus on what God's done, right? I've been sober for seven years and we just focus on, yeah, but I'm still not perfect. And we focus on that sin. We focus on how we keep messing up. And so I think the, the rhythm of the Christian life is that we should celebrate what God is doing in our life. That doesn't mean we don't look at the sin. Doesn't mean we deny that it's there. And what can happen is if you focus on one or the other, if you just focus on the ongoing work of transformation, you can get very discouraged. And if you just focus on the point in time that he's made you holy, he sees you through Jesus, you can get very confused, right? Because you can be like, well, he says I'm holy, but I'm not because I'm still sinning. I'm still doing stupid things. And so I think it's important to understand both of those realities, that God has set you apart. He's made you his child. He sees you through the lens of the future perfection that you're going to have, glorification, all of this is going to be done. We, we, we're headed towards a future where there's no more crying, no more pain. We're going to be healthy. We're going to be holy. We're going to obey Jesus perfectly. And that's where he's taking us. And point in time, he's made us his. He's made us his. We belong to him. And so we keep looking back to that as the motivation to then change in our daily life. We've got to work both of those together. I want to give you another way of looking at it that I use when I'm counseling people. A lot of times in counseling situations, when we're trying to change, uh, we can focus on the kind of just do it methods or the just believe methods. And I think we really have to work both of those tracks at the same time. And so I would say that in a healthy transformation kind of process in our life, that you should always be looking at both the gospel, what God has done for you, and the law, what we should do. And both of those things work together. Uh, and as just even to talk about law, you could just say skills, right? What, what I need to learn. So say I'm counseling someone about marriage. I would say, well, really, you need to come to terms that God has loved you unconditionally through Christ. And if that really takes hold of your heart, that's going to begin to work the supernatural effect in your life where you will begin to be able to love other people supernaturally. 
which comes in very handy in a marriage, right? You, you need that in a marriage where, you, where you're living more closely with another sinner than any other, uh, than any other relationship. So you've got two sinners living together. You need to be gripped by the power of God's grace and the gospel and forgiveness and how much he loved you even when you were unlovable. That will begin to change your heart so you can love your spouse in that way. But you still need to learn skills. There's still all kinds of skills to learn, right? You need to learn to communicate better, right? You need to, guys, you need to start on your 50-year track of understanding women and how they think, right? And, and begin just growing in that because we don't think the same way. And, and ladies, begin understanding how men think. And even better than that, not just men and women, but your man and your woman, right? Got a PhD in, in your own spouse and begin understanding them. So there's skills to be built. There's real stuff you have to learn. Right? You've got to read Proverbs. You've got to read the law. You've got to understand what you should do. But you also have to keep working the why. Why should I do it? Why should I communicate differently? Why should I live differently? Why should I practice new habits? Because of the gospel. And then the how and the what? Well, there's a lot of facts. There's a lot of skills. There's a lot of how the world works information, both in Scripture and in science, that we can learn from. And we can do new things. And you know, the whole self-help rack that teaches you you know, ways to communicate and ways to improve your life. Some of that stuff is actually helpful because it's just built on the way the world works. That's why we spent the summer looking at Proverbs. But as we were looking at Proverbs this summer, we always brought it back to this is all based on God's has said, his, his covenant faithfulness, his unconditional love for us. Those two things always have to be wed. Both tracks, you have to work both tracks and work them together. So no matter what situation you're facing, you have to learn the facts, the law, how things work, You also have to have a proper motivation of God's unconditional love for us. He has transformed you, and he is transforming you. He's made you holy, and he will continue to make you holy. Now, the last one, oh, we still have time. I was hoping we'd run out of time. Predestined for adoption. So the last one here is is predestined for adoption. All right, verse 5. Okay, I, I told y'all I have a problem with wanting people to like me. So this is one of those places where this is the Scripture talking, right? This isn't my idea, so I just have to throw that out there. Um, two, the two last words of verse 4, let's start there. Two last words of verse 4 are in love, okay? So it's important to pull that in. We've got a love sandwich here with this very difficult doctrine. We have to think of it um, like an Oreo, okay? So we've got this love sandwich, where it's, it's housed in the middle of, of love. So, in love, and then verse 5, he predestined us for, for what? For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. All right, very difficult uh, doctrine. Again, you don't have to agree with my explanation uh, to be a member of this church, right? To be a member of this church, you have to know that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. That's the core, that's the gospel center. Okay, so we celebrate gospel-centeredness here, that Christ died to save you, and by his grace, he will continue to transform you. But now there's this difficult doctrine here, and what do we do with this? And, and basically, I think there are, there are a million different varieties of this, but I would just kind of paint two that are most common here and tell you honestly that I, I side with the side that says he genuinely chose us, not because of anything we could do, but just because of his grace. He just chose to love us. He just chose to save us, to awaken our heart, to, to light that fire so that we would see and trust and believe. That, that's my understanding of it. And I believe that there's a paradox that somehow 
we're still completely free agents that, that are really choosing something there. We're, we're not robots. I don't believe we're robots. You know, some, some extreme forms of what's called sometimes hyper-Calvinism might make it seem like you know, we're just robots operating and we're, we're not doing anything. God's doing it all like pulling strings. I think God is completely the one that gets the credit for his grace but we genuinely respond to. The, the other view that I hear most commonly in our circles, kind of in evangelical gospel-centered circles, would be the view that he predestined us based on the decision we would make. And that's fine. Again, you can believe that. Good friends of mine believe that. Leaders at our church believe that. But that doesn't seem like that gives full weight to what it's saying here in the text. Like, I don't know why he'd say he predestined us and he chose us based on our choice. Then I don't know why he doesn't just leave the whole thing out. So to me, there's some mystery here. There, there's some mystery here. I don't, I don't understand fully how this works, but I don't think this text is written um, to, let me say it this way. I think in the first century, what was more scandalous than saying predestination was saying that the Father loves us. I think that's the scandal of chapter one of Ephesians. Are, are you tracking with what I'm saying? So let's, let's think back through our lens. We're Americans. We think we're free. We think we can do anything we want, anytime. We've been taught that since we were little kids. You can be anything you want to be. doesn't matter how big, short, tall, smart, dumb you are. You can be anything you want to be, right? You have complete, total freedom. That's what we're taught, and it's drummed into our head again and again and again, and it's made into, really, it's, it's made into a moral for us. Complete human freedom becomes this, this huge moral issue for us that I don't think it really would have been in the first century. In, in the first century, people didn't, that wasn't as important to them as it is to us. So I think a first century reader, when they read this, the scandal would not be this concept of a God that chooses or a God that predestines. The scandal would be a God that loves. And as I said, I want to couch this in a, a love sandwich here that in love, he chose us, he predestined us. In love, he adopted us as his children. And I really think that is the weight now, I'd love, I, can, I can talk more about this with you. I've, I've read more books than, than I ever cared to on the subject, okay? And I've got just a handful of them up here for you. I've got about 10 or 12 up here. If you want to read more on the subject, we've kind of got some encyclopedic, like, systematic works, and then we've got some more specific um, works on the side there. So we can talk more about it. And as I said, I don't think this is the center of the gospel. I think the center of the gospel is what would have been the scandal in the first century, which is God loves you. God loves you. He adopted you as his child. It's very clear to us, and uh, later on it says that this was a result of, his, uh, of our faith, that these things work together. As I said, there's a paradox how that works, that somehow God is choosing us, but also we are truly believing. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Faith is a part of that. It's not separate from faith. This is, this is not changing everything. We, we still have to believe in what Jesus has done and trust in him to have salvation. Uh, but just to give you a little context for this, John 6.44 says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So it says, Jesus is saying to these religious people, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. That word draw kind of sounds soft and nice, right? Like you're drawing water out of a well. Uh, it's also the same word that they would use like if they drug someone into prison, okay? 
So, so that's basically the idea. And C.S. Lewis, a famous writer that a lot of people like, uh, people that believe in predestination and people that don't believe in predestination, both sides all love C.S. Lewis. When you read his writings, it's kind of hard to tell where he stands on it. Um, and honestly, I think that's a healthy thing because the Bible, again, kind of holds God's choosing and our choosing of him in tension. So there, there is a difficulty there. This is not an easy topic. But C.S. Lewis said that in his own conversion, he felt like God was dragging him to himself against his will. And that's what John 6, 44 says. It says no one even comes to God unless people, unless God, the Father, drags him to them. So, so in context, that's how I understand this. Again, I believe it's a paradox that somehow still we're very active, we're involved, but God chooses us. He grabs hold of us like the illustration I opened with. We're a child running out into the street and God goes and grabs us because he loves us. And that's, again, where I think it lands with adoption. He's adopted us as his sons. It's not about us. It's about his love. And I've got an adoption certificate here. Some friends here at the church, the Hamiltons, adopted a child a couple of years ago. And I know you can't read the fine print, but it has his old name, and his old parents here on the old birth certificate. And then it has the new birth certificate now. He has a new birth certificate. He, he really, truly belongs to them. They are his parents now. It's, it's final. As far as the law is concerned, there's, there's no going back. It is a new identity that he has by adoption. And that's really what I want you all to take hold of this morning. Your identity is not based on how smart, good-looking, intelligent, uh, where you come from, what you've done. Your identity by faith is based on what God has done for us. He's adopted us because he loves us. That's the key here. That's the main element. He loves us. And it says in the end, verse 6, this is all for the praise of His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So it wraps back around to that idea of blessing. He has loved us. He's blessed us to the praise of His glorious grace. He is kind to us. We deserve death, but He's shown us grace. We've turned our own way, yet He's rescued us and shown us his grace to us. We'll unpack more of this as we look over the next few weeks at our new identity. Next week, we're going to zero in on what took place in the the act of redemption that Jesus performed for us. We'll get the next few verses. We'll understand better who Jesus is and what part he plays as the Son with Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit giving us this new identity and showing us God's love. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you uh, give us your word. I pray that you'd help us to understand what you want us to understand. And God, I believe that that the greatest scandal here is your love for us. And so I pray that you would help us to see that this morning, that we wouldn't be distracted or confused by other ideas, but that we would rest in your goodness to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.